0: You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR, 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in.
1: 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed.
2: Go radio, radio, go. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh yeah. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8:30am. Early double. Clap your
3: hands. <laughs> baby, baby, baby.
0: <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, so Monday. And rain and um, kind of cool like winter is is approaching, yeah, winter is here,
4: I think it's yeah uh,
1: yeah, it is one of those things I think where um it, you know we had two beautiful days, I think yeah, on here the in weekend Melbourne, yeah um Friday and Saturday, and then today it 's going to be partly cloudy with a very high chance of showers in the southeastern suburbs and a high chance elsewhere so there's a chance of a thunderstorm at some point today uh, gusty winds and possible hail in the southern oh. suburbs oh, wow. really i know I and yeah.
0: that's getting
1: good. Yeah. um uh, 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 a top of thirteen today with a low of nine overnight and then carrying on to tomorrow which is only going to be fifteen with a low of seven. And I felt it yeah, this it's morning. It's
0: going to be a cool week for sure. Yeah. Gloves.
1: Get your gloves out.
0: Or I mean, I oh, buy some. <laughs> I was thinking when I said almost, yeah, I think June the first is the official Winter? Is beginning? Is that right? Does yes, know? that's oh, right. June, beginning.
1: July, August, and then, yeah, yeah, we've got spring.
0: Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> we're already talking about
4: it. Oh, spring is here.
1: No, and, and, and it's, it's strange because it feels like, uh, I don't know about you, but it feels like, you know, sometimes when you get on a plane and it takes a while for them to take off, and then the pilot's in midair, and he says, you know, take, take off was really, really slow, so we're going to make up time in the air. And then they go, oh, we'll get there quicker. It feels like this year's going that fast. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's like when the pilot says we're going to make up time. It's like, well, why aren't you going that fast <laughs> yeah, anyway? <I> <laughs>
0: in June, yeah, for sure. It, it does feel like that. So it sounds like um, people's weekends have been kind of pleasant, really. I mean, you've um, yeah, you've said the weather's good. Mm. Did you get out and mm. do, do much over the weekend?
1: No, just, just the usual, uh, kids' birthdays and and then, you know, an old man trying to, to play sport and, uh, yeah, that's all. That's all.
4: You guys? Yeah. I just worked, yeah. I'm yeah. in hospital, so lovely weekends aren't usually a thing I get to see.
0: <laughs> I did a bit of gardening and I'm so glad I did <laughs> because, you know, it was lovely gardening. Well, yeah, I did that too. I, did. I
1: forgot that I did that. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
4: <laughs> well
0: coming up on the show it's it's another busy show today and um after eight, actually eight fifteen, I think we'll be speaking with Professor Sam Hepburn. She's written a paper called um, titled "The LMP Return to Power." Is there anything left standing in a way? So I was very eager to see that paper and to hear what she had to read, what she had to say, and to hear more today. So that'll be coming up. And also, I think you were out and about on the weekend. You didn't say this. But no, yeah, um,
4: I was at the No Mandate for Refugee Racism rally on Friday at the State Library. So. Um, we're going to hear some of the speeches that that was said on Friday night and also some of the voices from the protesters there.
1: Was that one of two rallies? or Was yes, that, was there that was, the one? Because yeah, it was the environment was, rally. Yeah. yeah.
4: Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Mm. Out again.
0: Oh, I mean, we, that, we was, had the, that was amazing. Last week, that was yeah. amazing. Yeah, really. And uh, also, I guess this is kind of following up on the election. We're going to be speaking with uh, Professor Philip Armand, about aspects of Pentecostalism that might shed light on Scott Morrison's politics. Mm. And we'll be doing that around 7.30 this morning. So that was an interesting conversation also last Friday that I had with him. And uh, up next, we'll be looking at the sentences handed down last month to leaders of the 2014 pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, which was also known as the Umbrella Movement. Do you, do you guys remember that uh, that movement when students kind of occupied For 79 days Hmm. Amazing all downtown Hong Kong Admiralty with all the tents out And uh, so anyway It's been five years And the sentences have just been handed down To the leaders We're going to talk about that And also um, hear from uh, An interview I recorded back then From Professor Joseph Chang Who um, is a political scientist At City University of Hong Kong So we're going to go back in time a bit And hear that But right now uh, We're going to have some music
1: Oh, just oh. quickly. I um. Yeah. <laughs> over the weekend, the body of yet another young woman was found in the park on, on Saturday morning. Um, and you know it was uh, horrific. And homicide squad detectives were appealing for members of the public to come forward with information. And I, and I read this morning um, that police in Melbourne have charged a 27-year-old man with the, with so the murder I'm of uh, Courtney Huron, which, oh, yes. yeah, it was, you know, it was, yes. it was very, very sad. But I thought I'd, I'd like to take the time to thank all the organisations out there who have dedicated years of work and tireless enthusiasm to stop violence against women, the campaign, and yes, to do that. Sure. And they, they continue to work around the country. And they're achieving some incredible... Outcomes, but let's keep working with them to change attitudes There's around the world. There's still so much more to do. Yeah. Mm. It's yeah, great to sure. hear that the, the police have found the mm. culprit. You know, yeah, a little bit safer really, off the yeah. mm.
0: and now to work against the attitudes mm. that allow mm. that kind of um, that mm. kind of thing to go and, on.
1: And it's a, it's a, as a as a man, I realise that it's it's a long process that we have to go through. Being male and then having to change attitudes because yes. we say things that you sort of have grown up with, but you don't realize that they're actually, you know, a pretty negative
2: thing Mm -hmm. that you're saying about women and they
4: contribute to a bigger picture oh for sure yeah just the smaller things are contributing Mm -hmm. to something Mm -hmm. yeah they come uh, they come from somewhere yeah but i
1: I, I don't mean to take up the the time but i was watching the football and Mm -hmm. there was a woman umpiring and my son was sitting there and i was really angry because carlton was was playing and i said oh she doesn't know how to make the decisions because she's never played football you know, like even something that little, because he went on and repeated what I'd said to my partner,
2: yeah. you know, which <laughs> yeah. is and she's like,
1: oh, that's how these attitudes start. Yes. You know? so, and yeah. And did you
0: then have a long and deep conversation with your son? We that's haven't had, had that yet. That?
1: We haven't had that yet, but we will. You know? Yeah. And it's one of those things where I had to actually have reflect on myself about yeah, my attitude sure. towards that. And that's that. important. Yeah. And
0: it is good to share those things with, with children. And I think it's also good to say, look, I don't know why I said that. You know, mm. um, yep. Yeah, I don't think that even. Yeah. And that's the thing. Why does that thought even come up when it's not even what you believe anymore? It's not even what you think. But it does. Yeah. I mean, my own experience as well, you know, I remember um, almost saying but didn't, when my little boy fell and hurt himself and started to cry. I almost said, oh, boy, boys don't cry. It didn't get out of my mouth, yeah. but I thought, why is that there? You know, why why is that still there? Mm -hmm. And just uh, in relation to you being a man, I remember having a conversation with a young man, and he said to me, you know, I I got off the bus, and I was walking down the street, and there was a a woman in front of me, and uh, I noticed she kept looking around, and I realized she was frightened because I because mm. I was a man. Mm. That, and he said, so I walked quickly and went past her yeah. so she didn't have to worry about it anymore. So I think men reflecting on these things as well. And that's a mm. really,
1: really powerful one, that one, because, oh, yeah. I, you know, with being African, but that, don't take that into account. It's just we will never understand as males how women can feel that way. You know, yeah. can just uh, yeah. like as you're walking, and all of a sudden, yeah, I, I've realised too sometimes you that, had that, this, experience yeah. Oh, yeah, that this person is frightened. So yeah, I have to yeah. make a conscious decision to either cross the road to the other side yeah. or walk really, really quickly, yeah.
4: you know? And yeah. I'm, I'm sure the, I'm not the only person or the, the only woman that, when they're walking home from night, holds their keys in their hand. Do you? Uh, so, so you're ready to open the door? I'm, no, quickly. I'm ready I'm, to... To defend to. Yeah, myself yeah. Oh, if no, I have yeah. to, I've got my key in my hand, ready <laughs> yeah. oh, and really? ready to no, go. I, yeah, I've never ever thought. I know that m- like a lot of um, women who have done the same things, and mm. we laugh about it because it's just it, nothing to us. Luckily, has ever happened, but we are we are prepared and mm. mentally, whether that be mentally or something that you're carrying mm. physically, you're just constantly aware of your surroundings, and yeah, and that's not And a men state. don't always have. Have that in the back of their heads No, no, no definitely no, not it's definitely um, a But
1: it, a, as I yeah. said, you know There's these these, these groups uh, Whether it's amnesty, there's lots of them Who are working as activists to Obviously change those attitudes mm. Especially towards um, the, the male uh, population yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think, yeah It starts young and uh, goes on You know, to the political level So, mm. yeah, for sure So we have a, a song coming up yeah. now uh, By Pira And it's Something Has Changed That was um, Jess Beck with Pura and the uh, Pura's the group. And Jess Beck, uh, the richer woman from uh, Central Australia, and the song was "Something Has Changed." And what a beautiful voice! Beautiful yeah, song, yeah, yeah, just lovely. Um, so I'm just wondering if you remember well, we I mentioned earlier that that. Um, we're going to be talking about the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong that happened back in tw- end of 2014. So it kind of started in September that year when uh, a few pro-democracy demonstrators took to the streets and when the police attacked them with tear gas, Hong Kong people started to turn out and it just grew and grew and grew until it really took over most of downtown Hong Kong Admiralty, that whole area. Students came out with their tents, um, you know, they set up, there was exam time, they set up study centers, <laughs> they were incredibly organized, and it was really a remarkable thing. Mm-hmm. And I, and so on the weekend I noticed that the, um, well, no, not on the, well, on the weekend I noticed, but it actually happened last month, that the leaders of that revolution were sentenced to prison, um, 16 months for their role as leaders, and others were sentenced as well. So five years on, people have been sentenced in hong kong for their role and uh, among them were professor chan kin man 60 a law pro- uh, 60 years old law professor benny tai 54 and baptist minister the reverend chu yu ming 75 so they all received 16 months of prison for conspiracy to commit public nuisance
1: and, and yeah because it was all to do with the decision on electrical Reform, wasn't it, regarding um, the Legislative Council in Hong Kong? That's right. Yeah,
0: yeah and, and the whole idea of, you know, one country, two systems, and Hong Kong was guaranteed to have de- democracy. But what was happening was Beijing was determining which candidates could go up <laughs> for election. Among but there were other things going on yeah. as well, because I think there was interference with the... Um, the curriculum and schools that students were concerned about, and uh, there was there were a lot of things. Mm. So with the convictions, um, um, Reverend Chu Yuming, because he was 75, he's got um, a suspended sentence, so he probably won't. But the other thing that was very interesting was that um, these convictions were based on colonial era public nuisance charges. So I mean, really, uh, unbelievable. Mm. That's oh, right. God. So, as I said earlier, you know, the, the pro Democracy Group had initially called for a, a short sit-in of two or three days. But after the police in tear gas, thousands of people came, and it went on 79 days. So, when I was in and became called the Umbrella Revolution, because the students use umbrellas to protect themselves from tear gas. So, that's how it happened. So, when I was there, I you know, planned this trip to Hong Kong, I think maybe before this even started. Because uh, we went early December, I went with a friend, and um, we probably started planning in August, and this all started in September. So, because we were there, I obviously took my mic and went out and among the um, the umbrellas and the tents and to, to see, you know, what was going on. That was, I think, our second day in Hong Kong, and so we walked up. It was a kind of a hill, I think, near Admiralty. And um, the tents were out, but it was very quiet. It was early in the morning, fairly quiet, not many people around. But there was one man walking around, looking around. And I said, um, you know, w- would you tell us what this is all about? And he said, yes. Now, the mood is that we're very exposed. We're kind of on the top of the hill. We're very visible. I was very aware that this person was a Hong Kong person and that he might be at risk in some way. And, and obviously he was too. Uh, so we kind of sat down but he wanted to talk, he was keen to talk it was very windy so the sound wasn't great and uh, we'll hear in a moment from Professor Joseph Chang about the background to it but uh, one of the things he did say was for us to be careful to be cautious so we're just going to hear uh, just a little bit of that uh, that mood in Hong Kong early December 2014 yeah, Welcome
5: American but we remember tomorrow yeah, stay away from here. Too dangerous. Okay. Tomorrow at this time, maybe here is a better film. Yeah. They would like to use virus. Yeah. Because the po- the government thinks that after two months, many people are tired of their occupation yeah. because it bought the traffic yes. and that affects the business of some transport company. So they complained, uh, And there is a the hygienic uh, issue too. Yeah. yeah, People are getting more and more tired of the protesters. and then the government think that it is time to use force. Mm-hmm. Even they use violent force, the people will understand them. Yeah. Okay? okay. So tomorrow, stay away from. We yeah. will. Yeah, I'm not going to come here too. Okay. <laughs> it's too dangerous.
0: And so, an anonymous person, and he also gave us a very a good analysis of what was going on. I have to say, mm. um, it's, it's interesting, interesting
1: that public disfellows Dissatisfaction with a pro democracy camp. You know, people are worried about their business interests and not necessarily the future of the country.
0: Well, I think that was um, something that was being trumped up. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> to some extent. But I think also, you know, people were very aware of what had happened in Tiananmen Square mm. in 1989 and that anniversary is coming yeah, up yeah, next week, actually, that. on the 4th. So I think there was a kind of tension, concern that, you know, um, the, the government was saying, you know, this is inconvenient, da da da, and they were looking for reasons, yeah, uh, yeah to, to shut it down. But uh, what happened was the, um, the leaders actually in the end called it to a close. So there wasn't, there'd been a bit of violence, I think, just before, the week before, but it actually, um, yeah, they closed it down. So now people have been um, put in jail for their role as leaders, and that's caused concern. But there's also now another ordinance, of fugitives offenders ordinance, uh, that Hong Kong people are concerned about and taking to the streets about again. So in, and many carrying yellow umbrellas, you know, reminiscent of it's a the symbol life. of yeah protest. Now I guess yes, it is a, of a, a really important movement. So. There's still things going on and a lot hasn't been achieved. But just going back again now to um, to 2014 and, and 2015, when I got back to Australia, I wanted to find out more about the background. So I got in touch with Professor Joseph Chang, who's a political scientist uh, at the City University of Hong Kong. Then he, I think, since retired. although He's written a couple of books just in the last few years. And he gave me a good indication of the background to the um, to the um, demonstrations. So here's Professor Joseph Cheng. I want to stress this is 2015, so it's four years ago now.
3: Around about 1997, Hong Kong people were very worried about major changes upon Hong Kong's return to mainland China. So they were just eager to maintain the status quo. But after 17 years, They have seen the tremendous widening of the gap between the rich and poor, the increasing collusion between big businesses and the government, as well as the spreading of corruption. So they certainly feel disappointed and they demand change. On the part of the young people, they probably feel that they are really suffering more because as they see it, the upward social mobility Opportunities for them have been reduced, job prospects are less promising, and they find it extremely difficult, almost impossible, to acquire their own accommodation.
0: So this explains why so many young people were involved in the demonstrations.
3: Yes. They certainly suffer from disappointment from their own interest point of view, but at the same time, they are certainly more idealistic. They certainly believe that they should serve as the conscience of the society, whereas the middle-aged generations probably feel the pressure of life more. For example, they dare not go to demonstrate because they have to go to work They are concerned, what will their employers think if they go to protest?
0: From what you're saying, it's both um, concern for the future and opportunities by young people, but also concern about growing inequality in Hong Kong, in the society.
3: Yes, I think in the eyes of many protesters, they also believe that they are not just fighting for a democratic system, They feel that if they don't speak up today, they may not even have a chance to do so in in a few years' time. They don't want to be subservient subjects under an authoritarian regime. They don't want to see Hong Kong reduced to just another big city in mainland China like Shanghai. They want to maintain uh, Hong Kong people's core values, lifestyles, and the spirit of freedom. Hong Kong people believe that they should be free, they should be able to speak out uh, and articulate what they feel, what they want, and there should be opportunities for those who work hard, opportunities ahead that they can improve their lot.
0: I know many people were relieved when the demonstrations ended somewhat peacefully. However, others feel that there will be negative repercussions for those involved. What do you think?
3: Most pro-democracy activists believe that there will be some kind of crackdown. The Chinese authorities have made it very clear that they are not going to make concessions. Hong Kong people have to understand their limits. And this has been reflected by statements recently that Hong Kong people should be re-enlightened. In plain words, this actually means that Hong Kong people should understand their limits. They should not all the time asking for democracy and things that the Chinese authorities cannot agree to. Whatever power Hong Kong is, is whatever power Beijing gives. Whatever freedom Hong Kong has, is whatever Beijing allows. The Chinese leaders appear to be very frustrated and worried about the situation in Hong Kong. They think they have done a lot for Hong Kong in terms of economic preferential policies in support of the territory's economy, and they think that Hong Kong people are ungrateful.
0: They also must be aware of the irony that universal suffrage was not available under the British either in Hong Kong.
3: Yes, there is all the time this argument by the conservative pro-Beijing United Front that, well, Hong Kong people never had democracy. Uh, The British administration did not allow Hong Kong people to have democracy either. To this, we can only say that basic political rights are part of human rights. This is what we deserve. This is what we should have while we did not have those rights under colonialism, nonetheless, now that we are a part of China, now that we are living in the 21st century, we certainly would like to have those rights. Hong Kong people also want to say that they have no intention to confront the Chinese authorities. They respect Chinese sovereignty over Hong Kong. They don't want independence, but they just In plain words, they just want to be left alone, to be able to elect their own leaders so that their leaders would be accountable to them instead of to the big businesses.
0: What do you feel has been achieved by the Umbrella Movement? The number of
3: participants has exceeded the expectations of all parties concerned. We have attracted a lot of sympathy and attention from the international community we have largely maintained the peaceful, non-violent orientations, and the government uh, was forced to talk to the uh, student movement leaders, despite the fact that the government all the time had said that such a campaign was illegal. At the same time, we understand that Beijing is not going to make the concessions we desire. We are not going to achieve much in a concrete manner in the foreseeable future and there is going to be a long-term political struggle ahead.
0: That's what I was going to ask what the next possible steps are, but I imagine they have not yet been determined.
3: The broad plan is wave after wave of peaceful, non-violent, civil disobedience campaigns we also want to show the world that as long as we do not give up we have not we have not lost the cause we are able to uphold our principles our dignity and so on it is difficult our real challenge is on one hand you you need to uh, maintain the support of the majority of hong kong people and at the same time you want to maintain the momentum of the movement while realizing that you are not going to achieve anything concrete in the foreseeable future. So this is quite a tall order.
0: And that was Professor Joseph Chang, from formerly from City University of Hong Kong, and it has been a tall order. And Professor Chang is a political scientist and uh, also a a rights activist as well, activist for democracy. And as I said earlier this month, once again, thousands of Hong Kong people are in the streets. Estimates vary between 22,000 and (laughs) 130,000, depending on whose media you're reading. And uh, they're protesting the Fugitives Offenders Ordinance that would allow the transfer of Hong Kong people accused of committing a crime to mainland China For trial. And there are concerns both in Hong Kong, but we've also seen reports in the international community that if it's passed, it will leave Hong Kong people at risk of politically motivated prosecution and persecution, too, I guess, in other parts of China. And uh, people are concerned about protection for human rights, that, you know, people, business people, journalists, rights advocates, political activists will be extradited. So that's a concern. But right now, we're going to hear a song from. The Umbrella Revolution, a song that grew out of that revolution by Denise Ho, and uh, canto, who's a canto pop star, gay rights activist, and Anthony Wong and others singing.
2: In 2019,
3: 3CR has the power Add your support during the annual radio to Power Radical Radio. Radio Thon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 039419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio.
0: Yeah, Power Radical Radio, and, yeah, I've got the Radiothon coming up, so, uh, yeah, get Exciting ready. Exciting times. <laughs> Exciting times. And before those announcements, we heard... um Hold Up the Umbrellas, which is a song that came out of um, the Umbrella Revolution and, and became a symbol of it. And the singers, two of the singers there include canto pop legends and gay rights activist Denise Owen. She's amazing. Actually, I've really uh, enjoyed finding out more about her and her music. And also Anthony Wong, who I haven't looked into quite as much. And, and Radiothon starts next week, June uh, the 3rd yeah, till the 16th. The so third. two weeks. Uh, uh, regular
1: listeners who listen to 3CR Breakfast can always donate they can um yeah call in on 94198377
0: to uh donate to the show or any of your other favorite shows yeah and uh, we're looking forward to that yeah next couple of weeks going to be lots of interesting programming and lively stuff happening so yeah do stay tuned now our next guest is philip almond professor almond He's a historian of religious thought at the University of Queensland, and he's been studying religion for over 40 years. Not as a believer in any particular religion, but he describes himself as an agnostic, um, and he believes that understanding religion and religious sorry religion religions in plural is crucial to our understanding of past and the present, and certainly the present moment right now, right here in Australia after <laughs> after the election. So last week he published uh, a paper in the conversation titled Five Aspects of Pentecostalism that Shed Light on Scott Morrison's Politics. So I thought it's probably a good time to think about Pentecostalism and what it might mean for politics here in Australia. So I spoke to him last Friday, and I, I do want to thank him because it was very short notice. Uh, but he was happy to come on and, and, and chat. And I began by asking why he decided to write the paper.
6: Scott Morrison invited the cameras in a few weeks before the election to his Pentecostal church in Sydney, where he was filmed in an act of worship. So Scott Morrison put his Pentecostal religious beliefs on the public agenda from that moment on. That said to me that, This is a prime ministership that will be or may be significantly influenced by a set of religious beliefs which are held by the prime minister out of his
0: Pentecostal
6: religious tradition.
0: So one of the things you say in your paper is that the idea that miracles happen is a central tenet of Pentecostalism. Do you think Scott Morrison actually saw his winning the election as a blessing from God? I do
6: actually. I'm not the one who said it's a miracle. Scott Morrison did Now, most of us, when we say it's a miracle, we're tending to use that as a kind of metaphor. But when Scott Morrison uses the term miracle, and when he says things like, I will burn for you, it goes, I think, to the way in which religious beliefs are very embedded in this Prime Minister, in a way in which they haven't been in other Prime Minister's even when those prime ministers have declared that they are religious believers. I'm thinking of Kevin Rudd with his Anglicanism and so on.
0: One of the points you make in the paper is that according to Pentecostal theology, all of history and the future is in the control of God. If Scott Morrison holds to this idea, what are the implications for action on climate change?
6: the whole of history is in some sense in the control of God is not merely pentecostal you know within the christian tradition there is the notion that the world will end personally i happen to think that unless we do something about climate change in the not too distant future the world will end as a consequence of climate change but if you're a believer in the divine providence in a strong sense you think god's in control of all this we don't need to worry too much so i think we need to be careful that doctrines of divine providence don't flow into a kind of fatalism where oh well it doesn't matter we won't do anything.
0: I presume that the Pentecostal people believe they'll be okay.
6: Yes they do and I suppose this goes to another point that i tried to make about the notion of salvation that pentecostalists tend to have a fairly exclusive view of salvation and they tend to believe that only those who are born again who've had a personal experience of christ as their lord and savior will gain eternal life That suggests that if the world does end, the Pentecostals and some others will be okay and the rest of us will be in deep trouble.
0: You write about the idea of prosperity theology. Can you explain a bit more about that?
6: It comes out of the very early origins of the Protestant tradition where people looked for the sign that indicated that they were saved. And one of the signs was stewardship looking after your possession so the accumulation of wealth became within traditional Protestantism one of the signs that you had been elected by God for salvation prosperity theology is a fairly recent development which has been absorbed in most branches of Pentecostalism where the wealthy are the godly
0: it kind of falls down when you consider other groups of people that are not Pentecostal who are very wealthy
6: wealth is sign that you are among those who are going to be saved but it ain't no guarantee okay so
0: it's not the only sign no it's not the only sign and you do describe pentecostalism as light on beliefs
6: pentecostalism is a very broad ranging movement and it's not like the catholic church where there's a central body that establishes what is the right belief and what's the wrong belief and so on there's flexibility and movement among pentecostalisms in terms of their beliefs The key thing is this very personal experience of Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Salvation isn't a matter of believing this set of doctrines. Salvation is a matter of having a very vertical, looking upwards relationship, direct relationship with God. In that particular context, some of the traditional Christian concerns with social justice and social equity and the poor and the oppressed tend to get a bit sidelined. They have a very uncritical approach to the bible as well that what the bible says in the first century is how people ought to be behaving in the 21st century so for example if the bible says in in the first letter of paul to the corinthians that liars and drunkards and hypocrites and so on will never enter the kingdom of god then that's the kind of view that pentecostalists will have and we've seen that recently with israel Falau, who quoted that text from the bible because he himself comes out of the Pentecostal tradition.
0: You're on 3CR Monday Breakfast, and if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Professor Philip Armand from the University of Queensland about a paper he wrote for The Conversation on aspects of Pentecostalism that shed light on Scott Morrison's politics. He notes in his paper that you wouldn't expect any progressive views on abortion, women's rights, LGBTI issues, immigration, the environment, and same-sex marriage from someone like Scott Morrison, who holds Pentecostal beliefs. You do distinguish between Pentecostalism and fundamentalists in, in, yes. in the paper, but there seems to be some overlap as well. What's the difference? Both
6: fundamentalists and Pentecostalists are pretty committed to the bible as the authoritative word of god that said the fundamentalists tend to be much more adherent to a set of doctrines Whereas to be a good Pentecostalist, you've got to have had this personal experience of God's saving power.
0: I imagine most of the members of a Parliament in the Liberal Party are not Pentecostalists.
6: I can only think of one other member of Parliament who's a member for the Gold Coast who says, I'm a Pentecostalist.
0: So I'm wondering, to what extent will Morrison's Pentecostal agenda be ameliorated by other members of his party?
6: It's a really good question. I mean, in in some ways, because his political agenda, insofar as it's flowing out of Pentecostalism, is also the kind of agenda that liberals might have who are not Pentecostalists, what I was trying to explore was the motivations behind his particular set of liberal coalition beliefs, which are shared by many other liberals and nationals in the coalition. So I don't think it will require much amelioration. Scott Morrison's too good a politician to allow him to go one step too far to breach the boundaries
0: of of his political beliefs. As you've pointed out, uh, Scott Morrison's Pentecostalism is quite consistent with neoliberal thinking on economics.
6: Yes, it is, and that's that connection between neoliberal economics and the prosperity gospel, the notion that in the best of all possible worlds, people are able to look after themselves And to be able to do so is godly, and if you do look after yourself properly, then wealth will accumulate. The implication of prosperity theology is, if you love Jesus, the wealth will come. It probably also implies that if you've remained poor, well, you're not among the chosen after all.
0: Quite a worrying uh, philosophy in contradiction with so much, particularly about the New Testament.
6: It's hard to line it up with the New Testament, but I'm very conscious of the fact that I came out of 1970s Christianity, and 1970s Christianity was very left-wing. That was a world in which, you know, Roman Catholic theology, at its very liberal ends, was lining up with Marxist theory.
0: Liberation theology. Liberation
6: theology, and then over at the Protestant end, was heavily bound in in america with the civil rights movement and martin luther king so i come out of a christian tradition myself although i'm no longer part of the christian tradition but my origins are in a christianity that naturally aligns itself with what we think of broadly as the left of politics i see jesus as the friend of the poor and the oppressed and not the friend of millionaires and billionaires so it flows out in terms of social equity and social justice and concern for asylum seekers and concern for the poor and the concern for the homeless That's It's that tradition of social justice which is very embedded in parts of Catholicism and has always, too, been very embedded in parts of
2: Protestantism.
0: Yes. Australia is well known as a a secular society, not much more than about 10% of people who actually go to church.
6: The raw numbers about churchgoers, let's say 10 to 15%, somewhere around there are active churchgoers. There's something like 50% of people in Australia would still define themselves as religious believers, but that doesn't mean very much. I don't think people who don't hold strong religious beliefs have any sense of the way in which the firmly committed religious believer will have his or her worldview, the way they think about everything formed by their religious beliefs. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see the extent to which Scott Morrison is able to embed some of these deeply held beliefs of his within his political activities as Prime Minister. The coalition was playing to and will continue to play to religious believers in the community. I was very in- interested this morning to hear, and I've never heard him talk like this before, to hear Michael McCormick, the Deputy Prime Minister, or at least the, the leader of the National Party, saying that he prays for rain. Doesn't mean oh, we don't have to do any, any other thing, he said, but we, sh- we must pray for rain. And I yes. thought, we've now got another piece of religion on the agenda that now the leader of the National Party is putting on the agenda.
0: Another person hoping for a miracle.
6: Indeed, <laughs> you pray for rain because you hope for a miracle. That's exactly right.
0: And that was Professor Philip a historian of religious thought at the University of Queensland. And of course, we do hope for rain. The farmers are, are certainly doing it hard all over Australia. Water is such a big issue. And I was speaking with Philip Almond, um as uh, you know to hear what his take was on the um, the impact, potential impact. Of uh, Scott Morrison's Pentecostal beliefs and religious beliefs on policy in Australia. And as he says, we'll just need to watch. Here's Nakane and Interloper. <laughs> And that was uh, South African artist Nakane with the song "Interloper," and that was just beautiful. I love that song, so good. And look, I meant to say, um, with regard to our earlier interview with Professor Philip Hammond, I looked up his writing, and he's written a new biography of God, and I thought. That was pretty amazing. And then I looked, and before that, he'd written a new biography of the devil. so <laughs> interesting. So, That's I, so I, asked I want to read both of them. Yeah. <laughs> I asked him which one was more interesting. I and what think, did he say? Well, what do you think? <laughs> the devil. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> more interesting. So, you know, we might do a little grab of him talking about that maybe for next week. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but anyway, b- b- what fascinating work to do. And uh, as he said, you know, there's not... L- <laughs> Not a lot been written, updated, and you know, going back three thousand years, yeah. and um, you know, differences be- between approaches to the devil were quite marked, and yeah. So I think that's another story. Maybe we do another interview with him just about that. What do you think? <laughs> Definitely, yeah. yeah I mean. And um, so we're going to look a bit at the news. What's in mm. the news?
1: Well, one uh, one thing that's happened this morning was um, we. The EU, the elections are happening. The European Parliament elections have been running since um, the 23rd of May. Uh, And I think what's happening over there is that there's been a huge shift towards the uh, green wave, as they call it, which has spread throughout Europe after early projections showed that environmentalist movement is likely to make up significant gains. Um, I think the Greens all over Europe have 71 seats... In the seven hundred and fifty one seat parliament, so these are all the European countries in the eu who are voting and I still don 't understand how it works, but w- what it is is this is a ninth parliamentary uh, this has been going on since one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine um, and what they did was they, they, they have an electoral law to reform old laws from that act, and the purpose is to i guess improve participation within the European Union. Um, And it's just really, really weird because there's new parties that have come on since 2016. You've got, obviously, President of France, Emmanuel Macron, who has come in with the LREM. Uh, You've got Slovakia and the Hungary movement, which has seen a rise of the um, Socialist Party over there. And I look at it and I think, well, with Brexit happening and well impending, Mm. no one's actually focusing on whether we should vote them in or vote them out. They're actually voting for things like... um,
0: Uh, Whether we should vote in Britain, the UK, UK yeah, the UK in or out, but you know, so
1: so the whole thing is really about the popularity of being on the seat, the European Union seat. You know, so in Poland, the ruling nationalist party has crushed the hopes of pro-EU coalition. In in England, uh, Brexit Party could sweep this particular result in Southampton. So the Brexit Party itself, which has just formed is going to be on the European Union, which is yeah, quite bizarre.
4: That story yeah. is how, how quite just, amazing. Yeah, and the, how do you see it, Alice? Well, yeah, being from the UK, um, I was talking to Dean about this earlier as well. Like a lot of, I know a lot of people back at home who voted to leave um, the EU and they they voted have voted Conservative before and they have very more right-wing views. And now they are moving over to the the green so i see the green wave happening amongst people who i know at home which is uh, i was quite surprised and quite shocked about that only because i don't i mean th- the way that that happened with them I, for me it just feels very flippant um whereas i'm you mean flippant to just change like yeah that. to just change your mind suddenly no, maybe, and i maybe don't maybe know all if those
0: environmental um, protests have been doing something yeah
4: and i really hope that's the case i just i just don't know if at home with these particular people if it's just more of a trend now to be or to just look as if you care about the climate oh, emergency yeah, the that we're in. The concern, and then the next yeah. trend is going to come along and that won't, that won't be remembered anymore. Mm. That's yeah. my only fear. Um, and that's why I use the term flippant. Yes, Because I'm very, I'm very sort of... Uh, I'm not at all like that if I think something that is mm. generally what I'm going to believe in. Um, but the Brexit party... I And I know, yeah, I know that you mentioned Southampton, but I think it's actually sweeping the whole of the UK quite hmm. quickly.
1: Hmm. Uh, but I also believe that, that that green wave and that movement, or even the Brexit Party, is all about democracy itself, not necessarily working for a lot of people, you know, um, once you used to vote a certain way. So politicians make promises and ultimately some people don't, now don't believe in, in politicians. Mm. You know, they say, oh, we're going to give you this much money. Well, uh, Fergus Kinard was talking mm, to us about yeah. the futures yeah. projections of this $3 billion for the environment, yeah. which ultimately in three or four years' time is only going to mean nothing at all. Yeah. But they've said, oh, we'll give you $3.6 billion. Yeah. Mm. So people are lost. So they might as well vote for something like the environment because there's a movement on the ground and they can actually see... Perceived action on the ground.
0: Well, I think, you know, the the news on the environment, the evidence is in front of people now, mm. you know, it, on your day-to-day almost. So it's pretty hard to, to yeah. ignore. And, and then, the
4: terminology has has completely changed now as well, is that you're not a, a climate sceptic anymore. You're a denier because it's so evident the science is there. Yes. So, so you're in denial. You're in <laughs> denial because <laughs> oh, exactly. it's true. Um, yes. Yeah. And and I think also your comment, um, Dean, about people losing faith in politicians. I think obviously that's how the Brexit party has been able to sweep quite quickly because Nigel Farage is at the front of that's it again. Right. Yeah. And he yeah. he ran the Brexit campaign and every UKIP campaign with the slogan him being, I'm not a politician. I'm in, I'm business. I'm a businessman. I know how to do business and I know how to get results. So Yes. And it's and and Trump did the same thing. Yeah, another fallacy that people in business know to get results. Yeah. I mean,
0: we know that Trump has been bankrupt. I don't know so much about Nigel Farage, but uh, there's also some evidence uh, I think that was put up not too far um, before the election about uh, Labour's economic management being better than the Liberals, mm. and yet there's this myth that goes around. I mean, someone just put up the evidence, you know, just listed it. Really? Yeah. yeah I, I, I think, you know, it's almost, uh, it's that kind of, in quotes, you know, kind of common sense that the liberals do it better, but that's not necessarily the case mm. at all. So, mm. yeah, lots of things. But uh, speaking of the environment, sorry. No, do, no, you can, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of the, the environment, uh, Nopsema's been in the news, and we all know what Nopsema stands for, don't we, Yeah. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> Take it away, Dean. No, National, you caught me out. Yeah. You caught me out last time, Dean. <laughs> it's yeah. National is right. Uh, offshore, offshore. Offshore? offshore protection. No, petro- no. petroleum. Uh, so I'll, I'll do it. Tro- no, yeah, yeah. So I'll I was you, hey, I'm enjoying uh, Dean's struggle. Uh, okay, keep going, National Dean, keep going. offshore
1: petroleum <laughs> safety and
0: environment managed oh. authority. Excellent. How good is that? Yay. Excellent. Well, I have to look it up every single time. I have to come. <laughs> Not, SEMA, No, SEMA sounds better. Uh, well, it's easy to remember, but national offshore, I think last time thought oil, but no, offshore petroleum, safety and environmental management authority. And, of course, we were talking about it in relation to the Great the Australian Empire. Bight, remember? And mm. we looked yep. at, you know, Equinor and the activism of the um, Bight Alliance in Norway, at the equinor agm and and, and
1: but just on mm. that uh, to ensure procedural fairness and nat- natural justice nopsema does not comment on the specifics of plans and proposal under their assessment for our listeners who might not remember that we mentioned oh, that last oh, okay. time mm. okay they do not comment on the specifics <laughs> they just make decisions well <laughs> yeah. It, it,
0: yeah well it's been in the i mean nopsema's been in the news because it has I don't want to use the word delay because I know what we're going to talk about next. It is said it cannot make a decision on Equinor's um, environmental plan to drill in a great Australian bite because it uh, doesn't have enough information or it, it's, it needs more time to look at the detail of it. So it was initially scheduled, I think, for, um, you know, just I don't know, God, about a week or so ago, mm. and now it's scheduled for June 27th, which really isn't that far off. So it needs more time to decide on the environmental plan to explore for mm. oil in the bite. But in the meantime a group of energy and natural resource experts from the university of sydney are saying that equinor is overconfident in its ability to prevent an oil spill so this is interesting and and they i think they've uh, uh, made an application to nopsema uh, around this and um, and it said that you know it could its ability to prevent it they're overconfident and that it could lead to catastrophic environmental impacts and that it's um, consistently ignores is consistently optimistic and made optimistic choices in order to convince the public and Nopsema that it's safe to drill. But what I found most interesting is they compare it to the kind of confidence overconfidence BP demonstrated in relation to drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, and we we know what happened there. And, and, and more
1: interestingly, it's hard to find any news because, as I mentioned, you mean uh, news on Nopsema? Yeah, yeah, or, or even. That's exactly right. So I do not comment on the specifics, but the information I received was from actually um, their website, which but it's not in the mainstream media. But they have advised Equinor. So if I went to the Equinor website, I'd find the exact same thing. Yes. Yeah. Mm, yeah.
0: Well, no, I mean, they did put their envi- environmental plan on their website. Yeah. And on, and Equinor put, uh, sorry, and Nopsima put it up at the same time. Mm. So definitely, you know, there was that parallel. And, and I guess that means we could all see it. So, Mm. you know, that's a good thing, but you had to go looking. Very hard. Yeah. 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 But it's also come up. Nopsima's also come up because it's being criticized for giving 3D oil approval to use seismic testing, uh, in, uh, to explore for oil and gas in the Otway Basin, which is about 18 kilometers west of King Island. So researchers from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies and also Curtin University in 2017 discovered that noise from seismic air guns used for marine and oil gas exploration significantly increased mortality in scallops. So, we have a scallop fishing industry yeah. in Tassie and zooplankton, which are what, you know, lots of marine creatures survive yeah. on. So, I actually, last year I tried to, I, think it was, I know it was in December, tried to get in touch with the scientists to find out more about seismic testing because, you know, there's so many aspects yeah. of this that we don't mm. necessarily know lots about. Um, but I, I didn't have any luck at that stage. But I think a story we should. Look into in the future. What do you reckon?
1: Oh no, that's um, that's something because we you hear about it, but we, I,
4: I wouldn't understand how I it works. Yeah, and, I wouldn't understand yeah. how it works. So I'd be really interested to find out more and learn about it.
0: I always think if I were a whale in the ocean, surrounded by that water, and then the sound of the air guns. Yeah,
1: you'd
2: hear How it would it be? Oh. Yeah. How would it be? You know,
0: that, that's me, I <laughs> think. Well, or would, it would patterns, wouldn't, it? wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that I think that, you know, there's a, been a lot of concerns. And, and the last thing uh, I've noticed, uh, you know, relation to environment is the, the Chinese company that's uh, pulled out of a major coal project in the Galilee Basin uh, near the Adani project. And um, not clear, they're not saying clearly why they're pulling out. Mm. But a lot of people think it's just financially unviable. Wow. So that that was the yeah. best news. <laughs> that, well, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, make, it makes sense. Those guys
1: wouldn't pull out, really, unless, you know, it was financially viable. Yeah. Well, so it was a big, ahead. I mean, $6.7 hmm.
0: $6. billion dollar project. So it was a huge project. They're, but they're saying, oh, we'll be back, we'll be back. But I don't know if they're just saying they're that. that to look at the finances first. <laughs> yes. So that would be, I guess, you know, coal will go if we really... Uh it's no longer financially viable. Yeah. Mm, and that's a, a sign, shall mm-hmm. I say. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's uh well news we oh quickly there was a eight point Oh, magnitude earthquake in Peru. Yep. Uh, I only mention that because I think we're not going to talk about. We were going to just have a chat about Susana Baca, but we can do that next week if we run out of time. So uh, preliminary estimates indicate that six people have sustained injuries while 27 homes are damaged across the seven provinces. Uh, we know that earthquakes are frequent in Peru, which lies on the Pacific so-called Ring of Fire. But yeah. So that happened probably about five hours
0: ago now? Yes, just overnight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think the last I looked, one person was killed and four injured because it's in a fairly remote part of Peru. Yeah, so maybe a little bit of Susana Baca. Yeah, we've just... uh,
1: No? Oh, Uh, she is... Which is interesting, I looked her up when you mentioned it uh, She was She's a key figure in the revival of Afro-Peruvian music um, And she became Peru's first black cabinet minister um, Which is un- unusual for an artist to enter Peru's uh, rough and tumble world of politics And it's even rarer for a black Peruvian, let alone a woman, to enter the cabinet So mm, we'll yes, go and listen indeed. to one We're of just her little, We have
0: time just for a little So, yeah, La Macarena That was just a little bit of Susanna Backham and promised to play more next week. And uh, also we have more on the story coming out of Peru as well by then. And the song was uh, La Macarena.
4: Yeah. So now um, we're just going to turn our attention to the Friday night rally that I went to. Um, no mandate for refugee racism. And it was at the State Library in Melbourne. So protesters were there. Showing their support for refugees and standing strong against the Morrison government. The rally was held to support refugees throughout detainment in Australia, Manus Island, and Nauru. But one family's story was highlighted throughout. And no um, yeah, sorry, sorry, there was
0: lots of people turned out?
4: Yeah, there was a really good crowd. The energy, um, it was really emotional. Um, yeah, it was very high, high energy. Um, it was there to support one family in particular, Priya Nadej and their two daughters, who were both Australian born, are refugees from Sri Lanka and they've made home for themselves in Queensland. They were taken without notice in the middle of the night, separated and are now held in detainment. So we're going to listen to some words from Lucy Honan, a member of the Refugee Action Collective. And from Aaron Milvogarnum, talking about the imminent danger refugees find themselves in since last week's election. So we're going to take a listen to that now.
2: I'm stand. We will not obey racism. We will not obey injustice. We will not. We know probably better than any other group of organised activists in this country that every single victory that we win is wrought out of activists on the ground, out of people organising on the streets, out of ordinary people speaking up, refusing to be cowed by governments or bureaucrats. By refugees themselves resisting and resisting and drawing on more strength and resisting
4: some more. So while we were hoping for something different, we are so prepared to fight the Morrison government. We know how to fight this government and we will not stop.
2: We will not obey racism. We will not obey. We will not
5: obey.
2: Exploitation.
5: What you to it's been a terrible week for Australians. It's been a terrible week uh, in politics in general. But for refugees, it's been a lot worse. Re election of Morrison government has created fear among. Many, uh, many people, including refugees in the Tamil community. On Sunday, after the election results uh, was announced, I received tens of phone calls from Tamil asylum seekers who were heartbroken by the election outcome. Morrison's election means many Tamils will face deportation back to Sri Lanka There are hundreds of refugees who have been denied their protection visa through a flawed system set up by Morrison and now have their cases uh, before the, the court. They don't have the time to wait for another election. This election outcome could be a death sentence if we don't mobilize and build a mass movement that Morrison and his core can't ignore. We must shield these refugees from Morrison's terror in the coming days and weeks and months. There are so many young refugees who are studying in high schools. If we don't have a rapid response, these kids will not have a chance to rebuild their lives
4: In our community. And if you're just tuning in, this is 3CR, Monday Breakfast. And that were the powerful words from Aaron Vaganum and Lucy Honan. While I was there on Friday, I also spoke to the protesters um, who were standing strong and are going to be carrying on the fight. And this is what they had to say.
2: Hey, Dutton, hear us say, Priya and kids must say, the fact that the
4: Liberals have won the election is a devastating blow, I think, to the refugee movement, and we're here to say that just because Scott Morrison has been re-elected, um, it doesn't mean we're going to stop fighting. There's no mandate for his racism, and we demand that Manus and Al-Ru be closed and refugees be welcome to Australia. So Priya and Nadesh, um, they're a Sri Lankan Tamil family. Um, they lost their high court appeal to stay in Biloela in Queensland, despite like the community support that they were getting from Queenslanders. Bill Shorten, prior to his loss in the election, did promise to reopen the case. So that gave us some modicum of hope for, for the family. But unfortunately, um, it seems like they might be deported back to Sri Lanka, but we're going to keep fighting regardless. My heart just bleeds for these people. They've left impossible conditions in their own countries.
7: They're, most of them have already been assessed as genuine refugees. And they they desperately need our help and we're a wealthy country and we're illegally locking them up in
4: ghastly conditions and it's just not okay. I'm really upset about it and that's why I'm protesting. Do you have a message for Scott Morrison right now? We're here.
5: We don't accept your aggression. We don't accept your racism, your violence, and we're not going anywhere. Scott Morrison
6: is not someone who... Is going to be convinced to bring refugees here by nice words and logical arguments. This is a Prime Minister who gave himself a trophy that he displayed in his office for stopping boats.
2: What can I say?
4: I hope he'll never... I know he will never use his conscience. He's not a man with a conscience. He's into punishment and I really, I have no time for the man. Do you have a message for the refugees who are being detained at the moment? I was just talking to to Nauru tonight, um, to a guy on Nauru. Uh, The Nauruan government has pulled the pin on the Medivac bill. They've made it a law about it's illegal so it's, uh, uh, it's very scary for them. There are very few left there now and they're all suffering. And we have to stop the Liberal government and Labor too. They started this. And we have to stand up as human beings to stop it.
7: Uh, yeah, we care.
0: Don't give up. Um,
6: I know after this election result a lot of you think that it's hopeless now but I think... We are not going to stop fighting to free you, all of you, and like all future refugees. At this point, we have to do whatever, like
0: whatever it takes.
5: I'm sorry that we um, let you down (laughs) during the election, but we're not
4: going to stop fighting.
1: We're still here. We haven't forgotten you, and we're sorry.
4: It was an emotional rally for everyone, and those were some of the thoughts and feelings on Friday night for the No Mandate for Refugee Racism. Just quickly, if you'd like to hear more on the speeches, you can head over to 3cr.org.au, and you'll find more on the Sunday, Sunday's Refugee Radio Show.
0: Great, and great that you got out there to talk to people, Ellis. Yeah, it was really
4: great hearing from the community, yes. and yeah, it was yeah. really highly emotional.
0: And now we have uh, Professor Samantha Hepburn on the phone. She's the director of the Center for Energy and Natural Resources Law at Deakin University. And she's written an article for the conversation entitled With the L M P Return to Power, Is There Anything Left in Adani's Way? Sam, welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thank you very much, Judith. And um, so what does stand in Adani's Way
7: well, uh, I think the main thing, as, as was the case before the election, we've got two environmental plans. Now to be clear, these plans are the product of environmental conditions. Adani has to comply with the conditions. They are attached to its mining license. So if the plans do not satisfy the requirements for the condition, then the mining license needs to be, um, either suspended or terminated. Um, and so the reason it's taking a while to evaluate that is these are critically important matters of national environmental significance. So the two plans are the black-throated finch, the little warrior <laughs> that's got its um, you know, habitat precisely in the area where the Adani coal mine is plant.
0: Yes, you know um, Samantha, I looked them, I looked it up. The black-throated finch on the weekend to listen to its call. It really is a, a little warrior. You're right.
7: It's a little bit of a worry. And, you know, it, it it has had that habitat there since settlement. And so the idea that, see, the plan that was put forward by Adani was to simply move, the, that they would somehow just be moved and that they would be happy in an area where there's cow grazing. And, of course, that's precisely the reason that they're in the Adani area. There is no grazing um, because that's where they can get their food. So it's not a plan, if it's just some sort of ridiculous alternative. And that's non-compliant with the legal requirements that govern what should be a robust approach to assessing the impact of uh, a coal mine in uh, in a, a vastly beautiful area adjacent to the Great Barrier Reef that impacts matters of national environmental
0: significance. I, I thought it was interesting in your paper th- that you pointed out that often you know, the Queensland government has been accused of delaying the mine or the, or the approvals, but in fact it's the Adani government that's delayed it because the plans it's proposed have not been adequate. Exactly.
7: So they are saying, well, we've submitted 11 times. Well, they've submitted 11 times and it's been non-compliant then that's a problem with them in terms of making sure that they follow through on the requirements that are attached to the license. Licenses aren't just issued and therefore, okay, yes.
0: Yes. And, and, sorry, go on.
7: Well, it's permission to enter subject to the conditions that are attached to it. It's not a grant of land, it's basically a permissive arrangement. So if you don't comply with that, you don't get to, to enter. That's the simple requirement, and and of course the whole point of having robust environmental frameworks, because what you've got with the Darny is both state and federal government evaluating it under a bilateral framework, is to have that reinforced high level assessment because it's considered so important. I mean, obviously water resources are critically important to Australia, but endangered species are as well.
1: S- Samantha, sorry, you might have to move a little bit to the left. You're breaking up a little bit there. Oh,
7: sorry. Now yep. that's okay. Yes, Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's sounding a bit better. Okay. Yes, it so is actually. Yeah. Ultimately, and you know, one of the things we know about groundwater is that it's a fairly—it's such an extensive water life. Twelve point five billion liters annually, which you know the figures indicate that that's more than all of the entitlements that the farmers have. We need to make sure that the drawdown impact on the Doon Springs and also its connectivity to the Great Artesian Basin isn't going to be too significant. Now, it's very difficult to predict that, but that's what we have to do because not just the fact that water is a vital resource and it obviously feeds in from different life um, and ecologies uh, in, in the area, but other people rely on it as well. Other sectors, farmers, Communities, There's 200 towns that rely on water from that area.
0: Yes, I so, noticed that, and, and yeah. not only towns, other businesses as well.
7: Yeah, so the idea that we're putting time frame on this and, and rushing it, that just opens you up to liability because the idea that, you know, this is going to be done in two weeks and this is going to be done in three weeks post-election, you know, that reactive approach, that undermines public interest that's connected with rule of law. And so this, and bearing in mind that coal is owned by the state as a public... That's not a private ownership, that's a public ownership. That's public right,
0: ownership. and the state has responsibility to protect Huge it and its responsibility people. Yeah. To
7: all the community, not just people whom they. You know, the idea that there might be jobs, and we know that that's controversial at the moment anyway. Um, China Stone has pulled out of the adjacent coal mine. Land. Yes. Problems with Getting financing? No bank's going to finance it because the world's decarbonised.
0: I mean, then, that's a huge that's a huge lesson, isn't, isn't it? I mean, huge. the financial institutions see the futility of this pursuit of coal. I mean, that's what it says to me. That's exactly what's
7: happening. And we know also that um, Germany has announced plans to, to close all of its eighty-four power uh, coal-fired electricity plants. The UK is in its, I think it might become its third week of no coal-fired electricity. Uh, China, one of the reasons China started to pull is is China's got a very ambitious clean energy plan. And India, which a component of the Adani and the dirty coal that was to go to Adani is wanting to pull back on its imports because of course they're expensive. So there's a shifting framework globally for coal. And that has to inform the discussion concerning the longevity of jobs. And also, of course, it has to inform a broader assessment of what public interest is. I mean, it's not just this short-term, short number of jobs. It's what's in the interest for everyone. We're talking about farmers, tourism. We're talking about, obviously, climate change imperatives. I mean, what, if we think about it globally, What gives us the right to proceed with a vast coal mine when the rest of the world is desperately trying to decarbonise and stay within two degrees? We have made commitments to... And they're they're legal commitments to an international community. And that's not just a rhetorical statement. That has to be a commitment that we take seriously.
0: You're talking about the Paris Accord, the the Paris Paris Agreement. The Paris Accord, I am, yes. Yes. So that's something that is...
7: You know, it, and and the idea that, that we're importing it to China or India is irrelevant. Emissions are emissions. Yes. You know, they don't have a jurisdictional boundary.
0: And sooner or later, as you say, A, the cost is, you know, too high, especially compared to renewables. And really, it's uh, it's like Australia is going backwards and not really embracing the possibilities of renewable energy.
7: Exactly. Am I sort of in this post-election sort of hype, you know, it was all about done, you and we have no idea about The point is, the book law process continue. Yes. Closing timeframes is highly inappropriate if those timeframes interfere with the, you know, the, the level of detail that the Queensland Department has to go through.
0: Yes, indeed, and uh, you know, with the government being so keen now, to, it seems it feels like to rush this through. So keen on the project, will they try and get scientists to perjure themselves to allow it to go through?
7: Exactly, and so that's that's a real issue. And, and I mean, it, obviously, it, it, it informs the, the, the whole fundamentals of our environmental framework. We have to predict, and we rely so heavily upon scientists having that sort of fact based. Um, neutrality and imposing those sort of external political pressures is highly inappropriate.
0: Well, uh, uh, Professor Samantha Hepburn, I think these are all really important issues to watch, and uh, really thank you so much for your paper. It was—I um, found it incredibly useful in in uh, understanding the issues, and I'm sure we'll be—I'll be calling you again <laughs> before too long for for an thank update. You, but, oh,
7: that's a great pleasure. Thank you, Judith.
0: Yeah, great to have you on this morning, and I hope you had a lovely walk. It wasn't—did you get caught in the rain?
7: I didn't get caught in the rain. It was really a really beautiful morning, actually. Quite cool but
0: beautiful. Wonderful. Okay, well, thank you again. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
1: And that was Professor Samantha Hepburn. Yes. Um, and could it have is, spoken to her for, for a long time. You
0: no, it was there? over a year ago we spoke yeah. to her. Actually, I looked it up. Yes, but uh, it's such an important paper right now. And, uh, yeah, coming in after the election. So, mm. yeah, interesting to mm. see where Scott Morrison goes with that, because I think what we're seeing is it's not making economic interests anymore. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And just
1: before we wrap up today, the leader of the Labour Party will be announced at some point. And we're talking, everyone else is gone, Bowen's gone, uh, Plibersek's not running, Albanese's going to get chosen. We're talking about Pentecostalism. Um, but Anthony Albanese and his wife of 30 years split up in January this year I wonder if the country would accept somebody who doesn't have a family member mm. you know move I, out, I, yeah.
0: I, think, I think probably um, the country's moved past that <laughs> no, so I hope so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, let's hope so yes anyway yes certainly that will be something to watch yeah. and, and there's all, just breaking news all the time around what's going on mm. in our politics well that's yeah. going to be introduced
1: yeah. uh, with, by 11 o'clock today The okay Labor, the Labor so party. keep well,
0: your eye yeah, on the radio and the news so big thanks now to all our guests this morning uh, Samantha Hepburn Philip Armand And uh, I neglected to say That he's written A short New history of God And the devil So we're Separate histories And uh, Professor Joseph Joseph Chang Chang. Yeah
1: We'll be back next week
2: 3CR relies on the support Of ethical organisations To keep our vital Community of voices on air And we'd like to thank Our breakfast supporters The new international bookshop Nibs at Trades Hall you can check them out at nibs.org.au and if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.
0: Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.